for the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, bringing you the latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up newsletter, Through the Haze. Because this week our top story was forest fires, or rather, how global warming alarmists around the world were claiming that Canada's lively start to fire season is proof positive of their predictions of climate geddon. Not that they actually predicted it, of course, except in the generic way that they predict a whole range of disasters, then when something bad happens somewhere, they seize on it as proof. For instance, U.S. President Joe Biden tweeted through the smoke, quote, We've deployed more than 600 U.S. firefighters, support personnel, and equipment to ca support Canada as they respond to record wildfires, events that are intensifying because of the climate crisis, end quote. And climate scientist Justin Trudeau tweeted, quote, We're seeing more and more of these fires because of climate change, end quote. Even the Wall Street Journal got into the game with, quote, wildfires such as those ravaging Canada are becoming bigger and more frequent as forests around the world increasingly dry out amid the warming climate, end quote. Well, no. As we've pointed out before, the number of wildfires in Canada has been trending down for decades, especially in eastern Canada, and at the global level, the total area burned due to wildfire has also been declining for nearly 20 years. And where wildfires are getting more intense, such as in the western U.S., scientists did predict it back in the 1990s, but not as a result of climate change, as a result of new forest management rules that were demanded by environmentalists. And if these people know so much about the matter, why didn't they predict bad fires in Canada but not the United States this spring? In a CDN post nearly three years ago, we quoted from a 1994 interview in Evergreen magazine with forester Bob Zybach warning of the increased risk of catastrophic wildfires in the western United States due to then-President Bill Clinton's plans to scale back forest thinning, controlled burns, and other fire suppression methods in order, the theory went, to protect owl habitat. So, fast forward 30 years, and the fires in some places are indeed getting more intense. But instead of blaming governments for creating problems that were entirely foreseeable, and in fact were foreseen, NBC sent out an email teaser on June 9th with the subject line, quote, NYC's Day of Smoke shows there are only so many ways to prepare for climate catastrophe, end quote. And they actually sounded happy about it. The New York Times Climate Forward chipped in that a new study, quote, found a 27-fold increase in the number of Americans exposed to an extreme smoke day between 2006 and 2020. That was principally in the western United States, where hot, dry conditions supercharged by climate change have fueled catastrophic wildfires in the last few years, end quote. Supercharged by climate change, you see, in one part of the United States, but not elsewhere in the continent. As for temperatures causing the fires and turning trees into kindling, this spring hasn't been unusually warm in eastern Canada, which didn't deter NBC from saying, quote, Canada is experiencing one of the worst starts to its wildfire season ever recorded, end quote. So, since global warming is meant to be global, how is the American wildfire situation next door? Perfectly normal. Below it, actually, with a wet spring and few fires. NBC tried to start a blaze anyway, saying, quote, Wildfire season in most parts of the western United States could be delayed this summer with heavy snow still covering many mountain ranges, national fire forecasters say. Still, the risk of damaging wildfires continues to trend upward as the climate warms, one factor making it more difficult to predict how the season will shake out, end quote. But just as global warming that skips France to hit Spain fails to convince, so does a worldwide change in conditions that causes parts of Canada to ignite while across our longland border the United States is soggy and can't get lit. And what if Canada's rough start to the fire season gives way to a quiet summer and fall? 
Well, the alarmists will have rushed off to tout whatever unusual event just happened somewhere else as proof of a trend that's not happening and as confirmation of a prediction that they didn't make. In the newsletter, we also note an interesting experiment in climate policy, in which a majority of voters in the western Canadian province of Alberta have opted for a semi-conservative government under Premier Danielle Smith, who vows to fight the federal carbon tax and other assaults on the economy of her major fossil fuel-producing province. And many people on the right are pleased with this. But Danielle Smith, as a politician and even as a rather controversial radio host, has resolutely avoided challenging the science on climate change and indeed has endorsed it when cornered. So, will this attempt to rally around the beige flag work? Even one pundit who thinks that as a voter issue, carbon taxes could be a winner for the federal conservatives, then panics that, quote, there is no question that the world needs to do something about climate change. News came out just this week about Georgia's decimated peach harvest and carp boiling to death in overheated Chinese rice fields. An action will cost us dearly, but the wrong kind of action will do the same, end quote. Carp boiling in Chinese fields? Smith must act. And it will be interesting to see which way she flees when cornered on this contradiction. And now, a word from our sponsor, and that's you. Because at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we're dependent upon support from our viewers and our readers. Please go to our donate page, make a one-time pledge, or if you can, a monthly one. I'm not talking a lot of money though. If you've got it, we'll take it. $2 a month, $3, $5. That's the sustaining funding that we need to produce these videos on our newsletter. And now, back to me. In the newsletter, we also note that the smooth transition to a carbon, energy, and prosperity-free future isn't going very well, including the bit where, quote, Irish farmers are rebelling against a proposal to cull tens of thousands of cattle a year to help Ireland meet its climate change targets, end quote. And an email from the Australian newspaper saying, quote, power bill misery has years to run industry warms, end quote. Meanwhile, quote, Germany faces electricity shortages and can expect to see industries leave the country due to green energy policy disaster that saw nuclear power plants ditch for renewables, business chiefs warn, end quote. And another item. Now that Stellantis has discovered that Canada's federal and Ontario provincial governments have taken themselves hostage to their climate delusions, it's demanding more and more money, quote, as Windsor EV battery plant hangs in the balance, end quote. And Ontario Premier Doug Ford, again making capitulation sound like a triumphant advance, quote, said the province has stepped up in a huge, huge way and wants the federal government to do the same on a deal with Stellantis, end quote. Yeah, and so does Stellantis. Now, for some relief tinged with regret, in the newsletter we note the demise of the huge flightless terror birds that were the first apex predator to emerge after the mass extinction at the end of the Cretaceous 65 million years ago. These scary beasts, standing seven feet tall or more with outsized beaks designed to smite, slay, and rend all in sundry, shuffled off this mortal coil tens of millions of years ago, clearing the way for lions, tigers, and bears to become your worst nightmare. But what did the men, long before the invention of the automobile, back when Michael Mann, Al Gore, and that crowd tell you temperature and weather were stable, was climate change. Dramatic change. Continents colliding. Ice bridges defrosting. Temperatures falling, rising, falling again, and so forth. Mammalian predators from Asia getting into Europe and the Americas and showing that sometimes it's true that four legs good, two legs bad. And of all things, there's a whole lot of unsettled science around the issue, including when the last forest rockets even bought the nest. That's how science is really done, and CO2 has nothing to do with it. Now, for something that should go extinct. 
Some of the zealots trying to force a total change in lifestyle and mindset dislike carbon capture because if it actually worked, we could keep owning things, using cheap fossil fuel, and being happy. But others with a more practical focus see it more positively. In fact, too positively, we think. So when Canary Media asks via email, should we sink CO2 into the sea? Our confident answer is no, you should not. And how would you? Well, according to the actual article, with a slightly more modest headline, can we fight climate change by sinking carbon into the sea, end quote, it seems that, quote, two Israeli companies are betting that by trapping biomass deep underwater, they can keep gigatons of CO2 out of the atmosphere, end quote. Yeah, if it stays down there in the anaerobic part of the Black Sea and no dang current or microbe goes and stirs it up. Besides, they're talking about sinking it in quantities insufficient to make a dent even in the human portion of the carbon cycle, let alone the much larger natural one. Fundamentally, it's all quite silly. Nature is a lot bigger than us, and it's notoriously recalcitrant. Still, here at CDN, we do have a biomass carbon capture plant of our own, whose only real drawback is the difficulty in monetizing it. First, have nature create plants that use CO2 as food and spread them over the Earth's surface. Then, if atmospheric CO2 rises, for whatever reason, more plants will grow better and absorb more CO2, which is why the Earth has greened considerably in the last 40 years, helping millions of people avoid starvation. You're welcome. But speaking of schemes that don't work, Climate Home News reports angrily that an industry-led deforestation project in Indonesia that had wound down in 2014 just got a new government-funded lease on life courtesy of those international climate funds that are supposed to be saving us from global warming. See, by turning the site into a biomass plantation and promising that the government electric company would buy the power, the government actually subsidized deforestation. Because, like the old Soviet central planning, climate central planning makes very crude guesses about key indicators and then forces everyone to act in accordance with those guesses rather than response to what real people actually want. And this process always ends in tragedy. But meanwhile, at least from a safe distance, there's also always an element of comedy. For instance, Japan subsidizing a coal plant in Bangladesh as part of its climate pledge, or Italy subsidizing chocolate and gelato stores across Asia as part of its. We are saved, at least if we're hungry. In the newsletter, we also present part three of our series on the new Clintel report on the new IPCC report, namely Andy May's chapter on surface temperature data in which he shows that the data are neither precise nor accurate enough to identify changes on the small scale that the IPCC is talking about, especially once you understand how the big graphs get put together. For instance, May notes that the northern hemisphere warms by 13 degrees Celsius every year when it goes from winter to summer, and the southern hemisphere warms by 6 degrees. And since these cycles are out of phase, the globe as a whole warms and cools by about 3 degrees Celsius over a year. That's a much larger swing than the supposed 1 degree Celsius since the mid-1800s, so the noise rather tends to overwhelm the signal. And another problem is that that 1 degree Celsius measurement comes from a surface temperature network that has many problems, particularly over the oceans. There's a lot of guesswork to fill in the gaps, and this guesswork always seems to involve warming the present and cooling the past to make the warming trend look stronger. Indeed, as May points out, the date is better after 1980, yet from one edition of the famous Hadley Center temperature series to another, it's the stuff after 1980 that always gets the biggest adjustment and always upward, not the more questionable earlier data that gets fiddled with. There's more in the chapter, and it's not better, including the fact that they make wild guesses about surface temperature. So yes, 
we are looking at man-made climate change, just not the kind the experts keep telling us to worry about. Oh, and back to the subject of forest fires, because it was such a big one this week. Those who've never been near one find that the orange smoky haze has this kind of post-apocalyptic feel like something out of Mad Max. So when northerly winds carried a smoke plume from this month's outbreak of forest fires in Ontario and Quebec down the eastern seaboard of North America, giving residents of Toronto, New York, Boston, Washington, and many other cities a rare whiff of fire season in their own backyards, the response was for a bunch of urban instant experts to declare it the end of the world. But Roger Pielke Jr. on his Substack channel wrote an entry on forest fires in his series on what the media won't tell you, which, needless to say, the media didn't tell you about. Pielke surveyed what the experts actually had to say, and he begins by noting that fires are integral to forest ecosystem health, and they've been normal since the invention of the tree. What's abnormal is the way that we've suppressed them over the past hundred years, which ironically causes the fuel load to build up so that the fires are worse when they do break out. And then they get blamed on climate change. Or do they? He notes, somewhat surprisingly, that the IPCC hasn't chosen to do the usual told-you-so and blamed recent fires on greenhouse gases. Instead, while it notes that climate change might make weather conditions in some places more conducive to fires, quote, the IPCC has not detected or attributed fire occurrence or area burned to human-caused climate change, end quote. Nor do they expect fire conditions to get worse in most places around the world, even if they plug the RCP 8.5 jetpack into their models. Pilkey Jr. then notes, as we have, that globally fires are decreasing. And he takes a close look at Canada's forest fire data, where there's no evidence of long-term upward trends although there is evidence of human causation, arson-related fires have risen. Pilkey Jr. then provides a deranged quote from a prominent climate scientist, who is, you guessed it, Michael Mann on MSNBC, that the only way to deal with forest fires is to decarbonize our economy as quickly as possible. What a help that would be when a wildfire breaks out and you want to evacuate a city, dispatch fire crews with heavy equipment, and send water bombers over without any fossil fuel. It's just another case of common sense going up in smoke. Finally, in the newsletter we inhale from the CO2science.org archive, a study of over 1.5 million U.S. government records of wildfires that had to be extinguished or managed by state or federal agencies from 1992 to 2012. It seems that, quote, humans have vastly expanded the spatial and seasonal fire niche in the coterminous United States, accounting for, one, 84% of all wildfires, and two, 44% of total area burned, end quote. And also, three, quote, during the 21-year time period, the human-caused fire season was three times longer than the lightning-caused fire season, end quote. And finally, four, humans, quote, added an average of 20,000 wildfires per year across the United States, end quote. So, for the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I'm Breathing Easy. Mm-hmm.